This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. Today we are going to take a look at a not-so-precious palladium coin from the U.S. Mint, and we're going to have a great interview with the numismatist editor-in-chief, Caleb Noel. If you enjoy the interview, if you enjoy our discussion, if you enjoy any part of today's episode, and if you've enjoyed our previous content, please remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. So, Jeff, you mentioned a not-so-precious palladium coin. What's not precious about it? Last time I checked, palladium is a precious metal. So what what's the story there? I love referring to it that way because, you know, as you're listening to this episode, if you're listening right as it drops, last week the U.S. Mint came out with a one-ounce palladium coin. This is um, minted at West Point. It has the W mint mark, and it's this beautiful coin $25 denomination. It has the Adolf Weinman design from the um, Mercury dime. The winged Liberty head dimes obverse yes. enlarged yes. on its for its obverse design. And then really something that I thought was really cool is that its reverse uses another lesser known Weinman design, the American Institute of Architects Award gold medal from 1907, which is I think a really nice rendition of an eagle. Absolutely. The gorgeous design. Why did I frame it this way, however? Because now this is the fourth year the U.S. Mint has used this design, and this year is the first time that the Mint is issuing it in an uncirculated version. Uh, in 2007, it was a regular bullion coin. 2017. 17, thank you. 2017 no bullion uh, finish. 2018 was a proof finish. 2019 was a reverse proof finish, and this year it is in uncirculated. So as you noted, palladium is very expensive right now. As the coin was being released, it was around $2,200 to $2,250 an ounce. The coin was offered for $3,000, which is a decent chunk, a decent markup over the melt value of the coin. What's interesting about this is 10,000 mintage, which compares to the mintage limit last year of 30,000. Well, guess what? This did not sell out from the mint right away. And we don't know, uh, maybe by the time this episode drops, it will have sold out. I would venture to guess that's not going to be the case just because of the reaction I'm seeing from collectors. But a $3,000 price tag, especially right now in, in today's climate, you know, people have been buying silver and gold uh, the last six months if they were you know gold bugs and and into the that market maybe you know amid a pandemic they've not had as many hours at work or they've lost their job or whatever the mintage for this is ten thousand last year was thirty thousand you can still buy as of the recording date you can still buy the 2019 version from the mint for the three thousand dollar price tag so if you had six thousand dollars you could get the pair of them there was a little bit of a push I saw very little in interest from dealers trying to 
get folks to commit to pre-buys? Because one of the things about this coin is the Mint established a limit of one per household. So, you know, that's their way of to try to spread sales around to as many folks as possible. And sometimes it seems like they didn't really end up needing to do that. Well, I can absolutely understand why they did it. They don't want one household or one individual buying huge numbers and then charging ridiculous premiums for it on the secondary market. But it just seems like, you know, given the low mintage and that uh, limitation, it turns out with the seemingly low demand that turned out to be unnecessary. And I saw on um, coin dealers, CDHCD, coin dealers helping coin dealers, you know, I saw a post asking, you know, did anyone buy a, a Palladium Eagle today? And the responses were pretty consistent. Either no, I wasn't interested or $3,000 is too much money. So yeah. that's one post from one dealer group, which obviously that metric doesn't necessarily describe the dealer community. The totality feelings. of, yeah, the totality yeah, yeah, of the market. It, it doesn't, it, yeah, exactly. It, it's not, it's not a summation of like every dealer's opinion and, and coin dealers are not a monolith. I mean, if there's a coin dealer who makes their money selling palladium bullion coins, and if they have clients that are willing to pay for them and they can make a good living doing that, then they were probably really excited about the low mintage. So, yeah, and, and I would say I don't think any of those people exist. But um. n- no, that's that, that, that's a hypothetical dealer. But you see the point yeah. that I'm making is yeah. that there are buyers for a lot of U.S. mint products. There is a fairly enthusiastic secondary market. Isn't it funny, though, that if I'm remembering last year, the reverse enhanced uncirculated 2019 American Eagle with the mintage of 30,000, we talked about it on the podcast, right? Yeah. Back you yeah, know, it was, it was November, ago. December. It came out. It came out while I was in Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, well, no, I would have been in Beijing on that day at the Beijing International Coin Expo. So I could not try to buy one for my collection, unfortunately. Well, <laughs> I remember seeing someone on the secondary market buying one for like fourteen or $15,000, like crazy high. And that had a significantly higher mintage than this Palladium coin. Except so, it had a lower initial cost and it had- Right, a, a lower yeah. premium. That's, yeah, and, that's right. And there's far more collectors who collect Silver American Eagles than somebody who's looking at this Palladium series and, and going, oh, I have to have it. I'm curious, why do you think that is? Is it just because silver is cheaper and the American Silver Eagle program has been going for longer and has yeah. more of a following and reputation? Absolutely. I mean, you're talking 1986 to something that really became available in 2017. There's such a disparity between price. Uh, you know, silver is the poor man's gold. Uh, one of the sayings go, I would say palladium is the rich man's gold. <laughs> you know, <laughs> certainly at, at today's pricing level, platinum is less so, although palladium is out paced gold for a while now, but there was a time when there was an imbalance there and people thought, oh, you know, that if gold is this much, palladium should be higher, or there was there was some room to play, you know, that they thought that palladium should move higher or gold should move down or there, you know, it's always, everybody has an opinion on these things and you can ask 12 people and get 13 opinions, right? But it's yeah. funny, it's funny, you know, you mentioned the the demand for this, the new coin, uh, there was still some minor activity moving toward, I saw one dealer offer $100 over, and I actually, I don't know how I got hooked into this, but I'm one of those people that likes to get airline miles and use them for travel <laughs> before this year. And so there's a buyer's group, PFS buyer's group, that has somebody 
in one of these forums that one of the ways you can get airline miles is called manufactured spend. I don't do all the these people. Oh, you go buy a gift card at Simon malls and then you can turn it over here and turn it in. You know, that's, that's a lot of work and it's a lot of what ifs. And I, I live too far out from any, it's just a mess, but I'm always, you know, Hey, if, if there's, you know, if there's something I need, I'll put it on the credit card, pay it off right away. So I can at least get the miles because, you know, I do, had been using them for, for trips and had two trips back in March that got canceled. That was all on airline miles. So anyway, this manufactured spend and idea, there's groups online that where they discuss how to generate manufactured spend and how to pad your mile total so you can get closer to, to the, the free trips. And somebody in there shared a link to this organization or this individual, who knows, I don't know who's backing them, but they were offering a whopping $50 over for the uh, Palladium coin. But somebody who's looking to get 3000 airline miles quickly and easily, you know, and by the time you shipped it and insured it, you broke even, but hey, you got your miles. So I have a feeling that the number of people who are doing that is pretty small and the people willing to go to that amount of trouble for you know, I mean, th- that's admittedly a fair number of airline miles to get, and that's a nice offset to the cost. But at the same time, I don't know how many people are necessarily playing that game. I think most people, and again, and you know, maybe there are more of these people than I think, but my gut feeling is that more people would try to sort of more straightforwardly buy them to flip them. And so there's absolutely, we see that, but the tepid reaction, the meh, sort of shrug your shoulders and and uh, the fact that dealers weren't pushing aside each other to get these suggests that uh, the end user demand is going to be pretty low. One of those outlets uh, is going to be these companies that buy them up and then send them off to third-party grading and then try to sell them at premium markups, even over their issue price, you know, to cover the grading fee and the marketing of all that and, and the acquisition cost and, and so forth. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about that. And aesthetically, it's a pretty coin. Um, if people are buying it just for the palladium, like you said, there's a pretty significant markup on the coins at their issue price from the mint. And with kind of lackluster demand, it'll be interesting to see if the people who buy these coins will be able to make any money on them at all in the foreseeable future. But Yeah, one of the dealers on that thread you mentioned, you know, somebody said, well, what are you offering? And he, he said $100 over melt, <laughs> which you know, is only a $700 loss. <laughs> Yeah. The one other thing that that strikes me about the Palladium Eagle series is that it's interesting that they're using a different strike quality for each year. You know, we mentioned that they had, you know, the Boolean strike in 2017. You had uh, proof in 2018, reverse proof in 2019, and then uncirculated in 2020 for, for this year's coin. It's interesting to me that it seems like all of these new finishes, the mint isn't applying them to all coins across years. And I don't know, I find that interesting. Is that just them trying to create a product or trying to say, you know, oh, well, this coin's different than the year before? Is, is that just a marketing tactic? Or do you think that there's some other reason that would cause them to have different finishes across different years and not have all the finishes available each year? 
Well, it's absolutely a marketing thing. And, and you know, marketing's okay in a sense that, you know, if you can present a compelling reason to somebody to buy the product that, you know, they're already sort of interested in it and all that, then, hey, great, good, more power to you. But nobody's going to go buy four versions of that coin at $3,000. I'm sorry, that, uh, you know, when I say nobody, <laughs> no. pool of- Very few people. Yeah, the pool of potential purchasers, say that three times fast, Sally sells, she sells, seashells, uh, you know, the pool of potential purchasers is by the very nature of the precious metal value, the markup in a quote unquote normal year is going to be limited. And only the mint knows how many folks in its marketing, in its um, stable of customers, its client list can actually pull the trigger on that in the sense that, I mean, yeah, some other dealers would know, you know, I mean, there's a lot of dealers out there that cater to higher end clientele, but it's to me, you know, it makes sense. You want to give somebody a reason to buy it again and again. It's a beautiful design, like, you know, at least from the images we've seen, neither Chris nor I have one one of these coins. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no. <laughs> but, you know, it's um, now what? That's my question. Now what? Because you've used four different finishes. Are you going to cycle back? Are you going to add color? You're going to, I don't think they're going to add color. Oh, oh God. A, co but, color, you know, a colorized palladium coin would not be. No, first no, of all, but, I, but I'm saying. I think you know, that would go over poorly with collectors and I don't think it would look very good. So Yeah, but I'm just I, saying. I can't there, imagine that would be a successful product. There are only so many tools in the tool belt that the mint can go back to. You know, they're not, they're not going to add color. They're not going to make a concave convex design. You know, they're not going to, I mean, what do you do now? So it's nice. And, and this is something we said last week. If you can afford it and you can have fun with it and you want it, great. Go get it. Enjoy it. That's a piece that, frankly, I'd, I'd be terrified to put on display at my house. But if you have the facility and the security system and all that, you know, just by all means, it's pretty to look at. Absolutely pretty to look at based on the design. The eagle is just phenomenal. And who doesn't love the winged liberty head? Yeah. And so the, the question then becomes, does its beauty justify the markup above melt value? And I might infer from the tepid demand, as you described it, I might infer that a lot of people don't see it that way. And also, I can't help but think that the population of people who would be interested in a proof, uncirculated, reverse proof, whatever, uh, whichever finish, palladium coin, I have to imagine that someone who can spend $3,000 on something like that could spend that $3,000 on something comparably beautiful and more historical. So I can't help but think that the market, the buyers for that would mostly be people interested in, in its precious metal value in addition to its aesthetic beauty. But like you said, doesn't seem like it's selling very well, but we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on the story. And if anything really interesting happens, we'll be sure to talk about it again on the podcast. We're dwelling in a recent Mint issue, Jeff. What was going on in the history of the Mint, whether the US Mint, World Mint? What was happening in numismatic history? It's funny. When I looked at what was going on, it didn't even occur to me for the This Week in History and the This Week in Coin World history, there's an alignment here. So a closing thought about that Palladium piece, you know, mm. something that the US Mint does is inherently more interesting to the Coin World audience than something that the Royal Canadian Mint does. And I would say, <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're for two obvious reasons. Obviously, we're in the U.S., we're not in Canada. But secondly, the U.S. Mint 
does not have as many issues as the Canadian mint. We so, do have. I, I will say really quickly, not to to cut you off there, but we do have a fairly international audience. We've looked at our. Um, oh, you're right. You're right. We've looked at the map of where our listeners are from, or at least, I mean, again, people might be using a VPN or something. Like, it's possible that the, the data that we've gotten does not necessarily reflect where everyone is listening from, but. We have received data that suggests that didn't Brian uh, Hertel, our talented, wonderful editor, uh, didn't he share with us that we get listens across six continents? I believe so. You are correct. Thank you for standing me in the corner publicly because I forgot all about that. I am curious to know, to see an update to that. I didn't even say that to correct you. I just said that because I'd be willing to wager that the majority of our audience is in the United States. But- you know, I would like to acknowledge our international listeners. And incidentally, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we love hearing from our U.S. listeners, too. But if you're if you're an international listener and you have a question from a, a more international perspective, we would absolutely love to hear from you. But yeah, absolutely. I said that not just to speak up for our, our lovely international listeners, but more to agree with you that though we do have international listeners, I'm sure the majority do come from the United States. But as we've talked about on previous episodes... A lot of U.S. collectors and dealers do have sort of a fixation on Canada and an anxiety about, quote unquote, becoming Canada. We talked about this in our in a, our episode where we discussed coloration sometime in the last few episodes. I agree with you that, that our audience is probably primarily interested in United States coins, but I think Canadian coins occupy a positive and negative space in the sort of American numismatic imagination as well. Yeah. Anyway, please, so, please continue. <laughs> yeah. Went off on a tear. Went off on a little bit of a tangent there. Yeah. Please, uh, but, uh, th- my point, though, is, you know, Canada is issuing lots of coins. So any one issue doesn't maybe doesn't have the resonance uh, where it does in the U.S. because of the disparity of the issue and then also the fan base. But so it's interesting to look backward in time to September 30th, 1968, 68. What was happening then? Well, the story involves the Royal Canadian Mint, which was just then completing orders for the 1967, that's the year before, Confederation Centennial coin sets. There was such demand for this product because, again, there weren't that many products at the time from you know any of the men's Canada included. We really didn't start hitting the overproduction of coins in some places until the 80s or 90s. Some would even, you know, it's a a thing that has accelerated in, in this millennium and certainly the last 10 years. The Royal Canadian Mint on September 30th, 1968, was just then, after nine months of the new year, just then getting caught up with orders from the previous year for the set. It's a beautiful, uh, we've talked about the coins before, it's a beautiful suite of designs from the one cent to the dollar circulating, and there's a gold, I want to say a gold $20, which to me is inconsequential for two reasons. First off, I believe the design just shows like the co- national coat of arms or some thing, whereas the circulating designs were animals and, you know, very dynamic and fluid and very, very beautiful designs. And at that time, collectors in the U.S. could not legally own gold. So I've heard stories in the hobby of people that were would go to Canada to surreptitiously bring the gold back and different things. It's very interesting That's time cool. <laughs> in the hobby. But, you know, that was a 
what a different time. You know, now we hop online on our computer and we place our order at noon Eastern at the U.S. Mint website. And, you know, we start the clock and we hope that, you know, FedEx or UPS or however it's going to get there, it has it to us, you know, by Monday or, or whatever, then you could have ordered it a year before, year and a half before and been waiting, 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 <laughs> you know, what, what just, you know, how far we've come. Yeah. And how far we've come, but I can't help but think that some of that, that progress comes at to the, the very minor expense of sort of the romance of some of these coin series in the sense that in 1967, like the Royal Canadian Mint didn't like field test any of the, their designs. They didn't like conduct a study. You know, they wanted to commemorate the centennial of commemorate of a uh, confederation. They wanted to commemorate the centennial of confederation. Say that five times fast. So they developed a suite of exceptional animal designs that were very dynamic, Jeff, like you talked about. And they just Alec, kind of put Alex them out Colville, there. Alex uh, Colville, uh, they actually, I believe, opened it up to a public design contest, something that they would revive 25 years later for the 1992 Circulating Quarter series. Which I have in a little plastic holder. The nineteen ninety two and the one that came after that in the nineties for all the well, there was the ninety nine and two thousand. There were two different series, although the ninety nine. I I have the ninety two and the ninety nine. There's the two that I have. The ninety nine and two thousand were neat, but they didn't break ground and they didn't resonate the way that nineteen ninety two series did because that ninety two series was the inspiration for the U.S. State Quarters program. But I digest. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I, I guess what I'm saying is that it's it's just kind of interesting that, you know, the Canadian Mint couldn't have predicted how popular these coins would become. And it's not to say that the U.S. Mint today can predict how popular their issues will be. There's obviously – there's a subjective element to it. Different people like different things. The collector community responds to different things in different ways. But I don't know. It feels – and I could be completely off base in saying this, but – it feels more organic and it feels a little bit more, I don't know, it, it feels less planned or less scripted. It's like, you know, they created these designs that they thought were beautiful and they really resonated with the public. I find that episode is really interesting, especially if people were smuggling the gold over the border. If that, if there's, yeah. if, if there's any truth to that story, I think that that's really interesting. I think it's to our peril for us to look backward at a, a moment in time through eyes that see today in as much as I'm certain they were using whatever marketing and distribution mechanisms they knew to be up to date at the time. There certainly has been a noted commercialization and and shift toward collector oriented type strike to order stuff. That's the beautiful thing today. If, if you want to frame it that way is you have no shortage of options as to what themes can be commemorated on coins and how those coins can look. A mint does not have to sell 100,000 of a given object for it to be profitable, for it to make sense, because you know they can use digital sculpting uh, and designing technology to create designs much faster. Now, what have they sacrificed? I think there's some artistic loss, although, you know, designers are of of two minds of that. There's always folks that are traditionalist and want to see the clay modeling and and all that sort of thing. You know, computers have been trained and created to do software to do so much. We've interviewed several designers here and talked about some of that a little bit. So uh, Emily Damstra, Chris Costello. So they can turn a design around much quicker. There's economies of scale 
that just didn't exist back then. There was, you know, some mints will, will have multiple types of presses and, and different little departments where they can focus on, you know, this area circulation, this is collector, this is a place like Canada, that's on steroids, obviously, in a sense. But no, you know, it, it's just a different world. And so that is an, a fascinating episode, though. I will stop my filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I absolutely agree. And and I liked your point about sort of the commercialization. To me, that gestures to a kind of self-consciousness where instead of designing coins to be beautiful, and to be clear, I'm all for expanding the parameters of what constitutes a beautiful coin with artistic merit. I'm all for expanding those definitions. But it does seem that instead of pursuing interesting designs for interesting design's sake, and it's possible that I'm reading too much into this, but there, you know, it seems to me that there might be a little bit of a tendency to think about what would be marketable in addition to what would be historically worthy and beautiful. But again, that's a symptom of the time that we're in, and we certainly shouldn't uh, ascribe different or pure motives to the people who were designing and producing coins in the past. So now I we should uh, shift gears a little bit into we're talking about what was happening in. In the history of world coins, what was happening in coin world history, Jeff? So we go to the September 28th, 2015 issue, five years ago. That year marks the the year that Caleb Noel joined the team at the Numismatist. So that's why we want to look at that week specifically. And uh, it just works out that one of the cover stories by our esteemed colleague, Paul Jilks, discusses um, how private businesses meet the demand for special coins and sets. So Paul's story reads, when the United States Mint offers customers a limited edition product with highly restrictive household limits, dealers and collectors can end up competing for the same coins and sets. Now, Paul spoke with Andy Salzberg of Modern Coin Mart, a division of Asset Marketing. Asset has been around in the business for a very long time. Keen observers know that they operate the GovMint.com brand, and they've, they've done other brands as well, and they are in Burnsville, Minnesota. They bought Modern Coin Mart. I don't know how long before this story, but uh, Modern Coin Mart's been around for, I don't know, 10, 15 years and an asset bought them five, six, eight years ago, something like that. But anyway, Paul presents a story that it, it's one that I think collectors really need to hear it and process it and accept it because you and I see it, Chris and I, you know, we see it on in operation from the dealer side, talking to dealer folks, there are no shortage of collectors who allege that the mint gives dealers preferential treatment. And they say, well, you know, the coin just came out or the coin hasn't come out yet. And they're already offering examples of these graded and so forth. How can that be? They had to get something ahead of time. Well, the reality is a lot of this is on speculation. A lot of this is, you know, knowing that it's like I got the email the other day from that buyer's club saying, hey, later this week, you'll have a chance to make a quick and easy $50. And here's details, you know, set your alarms and all that sort of thing. So there, there are systems in place already that have been built over time by whomever, you know, I, I don't know who this PFS buyer's club is, 
Uh, I gave the information to Paul last year when the thing came out, and I don't know that there's any way to know, you know, we've looked at where they're registered and, you know, where the coins are going and blah, blah, blah. Don't really know. But, you know, that's just one tiny example. There are a multitude of folks out there like that, maybe not for this Palladium coin because of the buy-in and, and limited demand, but when there are limited edition, limited mintage products the wheels start turning. The grading companies start coming up with, you know, how many different labels were there for the basketball coins that came out this year? How many different labels did the, the major grading services issue for the baseball coins in 2014? There's different team logos. There's signatures of Hall of Famers, all this and that. You know, the machinery, the mechanisms of the market were behind the scenes. They're always going. There's always somebody looking for the new angle, the next thing. And it's just a reality that that's anytime you have a limited product and perceived or real demand, the demand is always great right at the outside, outset, no matter what. Our boss, uh, my boss, the managing editor, Bill Gibbs, you know, he and I have discussed it with one of his collecting areas, Hot Wheels. You know, the same thing exists there. Folks, there's this mad rush to get this new item. It's limited. And, you know, the traditional trajectory is it comes out. It's raging hot. Everybody's talking about it, paying attention to it. Prices soar. And at some point that peaks and then the drop-off begins. And, and how far and how fast that drop-off is to develop and, and how far it goes depends on a multitude of factors, which would take hours to analyze based on issue and, and other things. But, you know, we've seen it as long as I've been reading CoinWorld since the mid-90s, you know, whether it was the, the uh, Jefferson set with the special five-cent coin in, I think, 97 Botanic Gardens, 96 or 97. You saw it with the 2001 Buffalo. You, you know, there's so many products you can point back to and go, yeah, it's followed this course. It's followed this course. It's followed... And for the most part, that stuff, it always settles below issue price at all. It, it generally, you know, the demand, people move on to the next shiny object. And so I can buy, if I wanted, those Baseball Hall of Fame coins now today for less than the Mint was offering them for six years ago. And I can't help but think that my perception of modern mint issues as being more commercial or having a sort of more commercial character. I can't help but think that the third party grading craze or the the third the glut of different holders and different labels and, and all of those products that you're talking about, I can't help but think that that colors my perception and the perception of a lot of other collectors as well, that this is on some level a money-making enterprise. And it li I mean it literally is a money-making enterprise in the sense that these these coins are legal tender. But it's it's also a, a money-making enterprise not expressly for the mint, but also for the third-party grading services, which when I covered the public response to the, the 2020 basketball commemorative coins, more than a few people you know, were willing to point out the sheer number of labels that are being put out. And if you went to NGC or PCGS's website, and if you looked at the array of products of sort of, I guess we could call them secondary products that they were offering, secondary products being, you know, certain holders saying, you know, first strike or you know, or, or um, holders and, and labels that had different visual designs relating to basketball and things like that. You know, that's a 
pretty significant business concern. It's a pretty significant you know, amount of money that they're talking about, but I do think that people get burned out. So the Mint might release too many coins or too many different coins, and to avoid burnout, Jeff, like you mentioned earlier, they might restrict certain finishes to certain coins to certain years. But I can't help but think that the sheer number of different coins that the Mint is putting out, combined with the number of different holders that third-party grading services are putting out, I think that that burns a lot of collectors out. I mean, Lord knows you would need to have a small fortune to be able to afford to collect all of the different mint issues and all of the different holders for all of the different mint issues. It would take a huge amount of time, effort, and money. And so it's, again, I, I understand, I can understand each step of the process. I can understand where PCGS and NGC are coming from, and I can understand where the mint is coming from. But at the same time, I have to acknowledge that as a consumer and a collector and someone who's just generally interested in this stuff, I can see the downside to it as well. So I think these are issues well worth examining. Yeah, we know that these companies are going to meet a demand. And the fact that there is a demand, whether you or I want to participate in creating that demand, is a different matter. I mean, you know, the same gentleman about which I spoke, as mentioned in the last episode about these stamps, things that, you know, these these things that were made especially to be marketed to quote unquote collectors, you know, he had bought some other stuff years before and wanted to get the idea of, Oh, you know, this is a good investment. This is good. Well, you know, I want to go, you can't treat it that way. If you're going to be cavalier about gaining the information you need to understand it and the market. Another guy in in town, I haven't seen him in a while, but usually I go down to the farmer's market. Sometimes he's there. You know, he very much was interested in these different, the first strike and all the different labels. And I go, man, you know, I don't see how anybody's going to remember that five years from now and how it's not just going to be any old regular coin, but the demand is there at the initial outset and companies meet it. And if PCGS and NGC didn't do it, maybe somebody else would. There's Salzburg here in this story says, our customers expect the firm to have limited edition U.S. Mint products available for sale soon after they are offered by the Bureau. To do so, however, has not been an easy task because the Mint imposes household ordering limits and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he, he gets into in Paul's story about what they do and, and why they do it. And, you know, if they didn't fill that need, somebody else would. And there are other folks who are generally filling that need as well. It's not just this firm. There are many firms involved. And, you know, some folks don't play in those. They don't dip their toes in that water. They don't understand the market. Some dealers, they, you know, they're not going to, they're a Lincoln cent specialist. Why are they going to look at modern mint crap uh, stuff? <laughs> you know, but they might say it that way. And, you know, at the same time, somebody might just be an opportunist and say, hey, I'm going to try to get mine and, and flip it and make 200 bucks and move on. It is what the market is. And the only way to change that is to change the market. And you change the market with volumes of actions, reactions, or non-actions. I mean, we saw it this year just with how much of the economy is tied to service industry and people going out to eat and, and, and consuming as they normally do. And when people stop doing that, everything bottles up. But, you know, if I go to the local Mexican restaurant here in town, they have money, they can pay their employee, their employee goes and buys new shoes, the person working at the shoe shop, you know, it, it's all cyclical and it all, 
it's all exponential. And, and so Chris or I, or you, the listener sitting out of the market confusion or participation, it's going to take a lot of people at that level to say, you know what? It doesn't make sense. If you don't think it makes sense, but the flip side is there are many times it has made sense. If you're looking at a sheer dollars and cents, there's many collectors who just want to own one of XYZ product because they're collecting a set and they get turned off when they can't buy that. And, you know, maybe they change their collecting approach. Maybe they get out of collecting altogether. Whoa. You know, how, how sad is that? True. You talked about people getting out of collecting. The mints dwindling customer base that has been dwindling since the 1990s, at least if you if you believe Director Ryder in his testimony uh, before Congress from a couple of years ago. It's worth understanding that the smaller that the Mint's customer base gets, the more influence each one of those customers has in terms of whether their interests are spoken to, whether, you know, the Mint, when you're marketing to a smaller group of people, the sensibilities of any individual person are sort of magnified. And so I wonder if there was sort of a renaissance of American coin collecting in, in at some point in the next few years. I wonder if that would change the behavior of the mint and third-party grading companies at all, because you'd have a larger, broader, and at least theoretically more diverse market. And I would be interested to see how those, not only the marketing patterns, but what products were made available. I'd be curious to see how that would shift if there was a sudden influx of collectors into the space and that's hard to know and i think you know we'd have a hard time gaming that out but at the same time you know i I don't know that would require an analysis of demographic data that jeff i don't think you or i have the resources to do right now but anyway but in that sort of vein talking about the sensibilities of collectors and what collectors are interested in and look for i wanted to take a quick look at a couple of letters uh, from the letters to the editor page, as I do every week. There weren't very many, but there were two that, that jumped out to me. One, because it brought up an interesting sort of sociopolitical issue. The other, because it told a really interesting story about the craft of numismatic research and numismatic writing. So the first letter that I was interested in is entitled, Rejection Had Other Cause. And it reads, quote, I respectfully disagree with Howard Berlin's guest commentary suggesting that a new $10 bill might be rejected by the public because it will have a woman on it, comparing it to the Susan B. Anthony and Sacagawea dollars, which were rejected by the public. Those two dollar coins were rejected because they were dollar coins, which general public will continue to reject so long as there is a dollar bill available to use in its place. I point out that the Eisenhower dollar coin was likewise rejected by the public, even though it bore the portrait of a male generally well-liked by the public. The public rejected the dollar coin concept, not the person on it. Uh, from Tom DeLore, who submitted that via email. I enjoy this for a number of reasons, and I understand that this is somewhat dicey territory to be getting into, but you know, a number of people, our current president included, um, expressed serious reservations, to put it politely, about the appearance of a woman, whether Harriet Tubman or whether scenes from the suffrage movement, which were proposed by organizations like Women on 20s, which was trying to push for uh, the portrait of a woman to be featured on the $20 bill in lieu of Andrew Jackson. That debate, it kind of became a battle in a, in sort of the larger culture war. A lot of people, you know, I believe Donald Trump referred to the eventual placement of Tubman in 2016 on the 20 as an act of quote unquote political correctness, which there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, it's I think that this analysis gestures to something interesting, which is that, you know, people just don't like dollar coins. 
And that, you know, the relationship that people have to paper money and coins is fairly different. And I thought that Delorey's point that the public's acceptance or rejection of a piece of, of a design, as you said, had more to do with the denomination, the form of the coin than the person on it. So I found that really interesting. And then the second one is a little bit longer, is entitled Margot to the Rescue. And it reads, when Margot Russell passed away, I had intended to write a note discussing a great favor she once did for me. The fine tribute to her memory carried out at the Numismatic Literary Guild meeting at the Chicago American Numismatic Association show reminded me to do this. In the summer of 1975, I was at the National Archives in Washington, finishing up the research for the book I was writing for the Token and Metal Society on the metal struck by the Philadelphia Mint from 1792 to 1892. One avenue that had not yet been explored was an examination of the metal dyes still on hand at the Mint. To gain access to these dyes, I applied to Eleonora Hayden, then the Mint historian. She thought it would be no problem, just the mere formality of clearing the request through the legal department. When I checked back a week later, however, the answer was no, and the legal department claiming that a horde of researchers would want to follow me, there would be a, quote, line all the way around the Mint. I asked to meet with Mint Director Mary Brooks and was told that the lawyers had forbidden that as well. Less than a month later, I attended the ANA show. In passing, I mentioned to Margot the recent impasse at the Mint over the metal dies. She replied that she and Mary Brooks were not only good friends, but talked regularly on Mary's private line. Margot said she would ask Mary the reason for the problem. It was therefore a pleasant surprise to receive a call from Margot a few days later. She had spoken with Mary Brooks, who, it turned out, had not even been told of my request. The director issued an order that I was to be allowed to examine the dies whenever it was convenient. I did just that, and as a result, many of the medals for which I had been unable to obtain a description were now available as dies. Thanks to the phone call from Margot to Mary Brooks, the metal book became a better reference. R.W. Julian from Logansport, Indiana. I appreciated that a lot because it's, you know, a, a lot of us consume these fantastic reference works written by eminent numismatists. And it's writing a book like that. It's funny. Um, Larry asked us, you know, do you guys, you know, do either of you ever want to write a book? And I think, you know, you indicated that you were, that you would do it if you were interested. I, I definitely want to at some point. So it's interesting to see the sheer amount of work and research and just little episodes like this that go into the production mm -hmm of those reference works. And so, and also, you know, R.W. Julian's a prolific numismatic writer and, and that was, you know, that he wrote this was a nice tribute to Margot Russell in and of itself. But Absolutely. then I found the insight into the research process uh, kind of contained within that story to be really interesting and worth sharing. So I awesome. hope that all of you listeners thought the same. And his book, Medals of the U.S. Mint the First Century, I was fortunate enough to obtain last year. Uh, and it is currently on my bookshelves in the other room from whence I pulled a different book this week for our what's what we're reading segment. Yeah. So Jeff, what are you reading? What book did you pull down off of your shelf to discuss with our fine listeners? I was drawn to something this week that sort of reminds me of a, an episode in youth. When I was young, I was exposed to the story in the mid eighties. This was a very much a, a new story in the media, in the national consciousness. When I was got older, I bought several books about this famous episode. What is this? This is the treasure of the Atocha, a $400 million archeological adventure. The book is by R. Duncan Matthewson III. It talks about this. It was a 16-year adventure to search for this treasure. Mel Fisher was the lead 
explorer on this. The book really brings to life the history of this as you're putting all these puzzle pieces together to really gain a view of the treasure and how it was found, the technology behind it, the value in it, both archaeologically and less so economically. There's uh, insider accounts of the controversy over who would have access to it. You know, you can get it for, I don't know, 10 bucks or something at at your used bookseller. The Atocha Nuestra Señora de Atocha was, for me, probably the earliest exposure to the shipwreck world. 1622 wreck, uh, found in the 1980s. It's just the stuff of dreams, stuff of which dreams are made. And I remember being a wide-eyed little punk kid in the mid to late 80s, reading about it and getting excited by the prospect of finding treasure. I read a book from my grade school about some treasure in Bedford, Virginia. I've never, I can't remember the name of that one, but there, you know, it, it just, it animates, uh, reanimates a, a period of time when the hobby was so fresh and, and new. So I thought that was worth noting. There are other books out there on the Atocha and certainly, you know, I love books. So all of them are give a claim for all of them being worthwhile and offering something different. But that's what uh, stood out to me for this week. That's an awesome story. I feel like we all have a memory of some numismatic anecdote that really captured our imagination. So thanks for sharing a little bit about, you know, one of yours. So now, Jeff, I believe I owe you an answer to a trivia question, and you're going to ask me another one. Yes, yes. So last week, uh, we were looking north to the Royal Canadian Mint because of the This Week in History. What was happening last episode, there was an anniversary with the Silver Maple Leaf, $5 coin, that debuted in 1988. I wanted to know who was the designer for the reverse. There's been multiple obverses because the effigy of Queen Elizabeth has been changed over the years, but the reverse is by a singular artist. Yes, there's been various collector versions and other bullion related, but we're, we're looking for the design. Do you know who designed it? Tim Horton. You ought to know. I, I, I honestly don't. Who, who ought, did design it? Ought to know. You ought to know. No, that's no hint. Walter Ott is the guy's name. You know, I've heard the name in passing because of being in the coin space for all these years now, but it's it was a tough one. If that if we did an updated version of Coin World Trivia, that would be expert level. So I certainly cannot fault you for not knowing that. When you get the coin, you don't necessarily go to look and see who designed it when it's a bullion coin. Maybe maybe a collector coin. But I've also I've actually never owned a Canadian maple leaf. So <sighs> I've never really I've never really had cause to look into them. In, for shame. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. sure. I, I'm not I'm not much of a bullion stacker. That's yeah. just not I I, yeah. I I respect and appreciate people who are, and I think that that can be a wonderful way to enjoy the hobby, but I have never personally been very interested in bullion coins. So I've never really truthfully I've just never had occasion to to look into it. So thank you very much for enlightening me on that, Jeff. Absolutely. So I want to talk about something related to the Atocha and ask you that for next week. Uh cool. see if you can answer it. And it's 
it's coin related in in so much as it relates to the finding of the treasure. Now, the tre- for those who don't know the story, it took Mel Fisher and his team of treasure salvers 16 plus years. There was a legal battle. One of his children died diving for these riches. It's a very dramatic tale of how long and the effort and the expense and the human toll and otherwise for them to bring this treasure up from the ocean floor. But there was something that Fisher said repeatedly during these efforts that motivated the team. And I think it's something that is something I need to tell myself more often, sort of. What was that three-word phrase that Fisher told the team to keep their spirits high so that they would forever be positive that the treasure would be found. It's very arcane, but you know, this is, it's fun. Arcane, but those make some of the best trivia questions because it's, you were, you know, to know that someone would have to have a pretty in-depth knowledge of the Atocha. So I will think on that. And while I'm doing that, we really hope that you enjoy our interview with Caleb Noel, the current editor-in-chief of The Numismatist. Jeff and I are very lucky today to be joined by Caleb Noel, the current editor of The Numismatist. Thanks so much for joining us, Caleb. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your background in numismatics and your journey to The Numismatist specifically? Sure. Well, when I was younger, I think like a lot of people, I did collect the 50 State Quarter series. I had, you know, grandparents would send me Susan B. Anthony dollars or Sacagawea dollars so that was definitely my first, uh, that was my introduction with numismatics back in the day. And uh, like a lot of people, I started losing interest as I got older. And when I got to high school, I realized that an early dream of mine started becoming that I wanted to be sort of in collections management, maybe for an art museum or history museum. And uh, art history and museum studies kind of became the perfect mix for me. So I, yeah, I realized at the time how competitive museum jobs were. So I quickly began uh, interning with with anyone, you know, any, anywhere that I could find in the Colorado Springs area. Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center was one, Pioneers Museum, the University of Colorado's Galleries of Contemporary Art. In one of my courses, actually, as I was going through all of these various networking opportunities, I met with the ANA's current museum technician, Dana Phillips, and she had recently been hired on full time. And she encouraged me to apply for this internship with the Money Museum because it was primarily cataloging the collection and helping with exhibits. And uh, I admittedly did not even know that the Money Museum was here. It was not something that I had ever visited when I was a kid. But the cataloging the collection aspect seemed very interesting to me. So I interviewed with Doug Mudd, and I I was thrilled when I received the position. So after about uh, a year and a half in that role, then editor-in-chief Barbara Gregory had asked if I wanted to intern with the magazine for six months. That was something that uh, I had about six months left on my undergraduate degree. And I thought, well, that would be a great opportunity to utilize some of the writing skills that I had. And uh, I was really thrilled to get that position as well. I quickly just found that editorial work fit me like a glove. And when I graduated, Barb offered me a full-time editorial position. And it just sort of felt like it was meant to be. 
So it sounds like some of your background in numismatics, it sounds like you have quite a bit of curatorial experience, which I imagine is distinct from a more traditional collecting path in a number of ways. Though you mentioned that you had collected the 50 State Quarters, Susan B. Anthony Dollars, both of which are series that, that I collected and I know Jeff has collected and we have a fair amount of experience with. How is curatorial work different from sort of traditional collecting? Do you approach it with a different mindset than you would if you were putting together a personal collection? Uh, I think so. I think when you're trying to, you know, curate an art or a history exhibit, you're trying to reach quite a wide audience. So I think with personal collecting, it can be far more esoteric. Whereas with an art exhibit or a history exhibit, you definitely want to cover a lot of bases. So I want to ask, you mentioned, you know, the internship with uh, Barbara Gregory as being sort of the perfect use of your writing background. What is your writing background? Because, you know, you've talked about the art side of things and, and that. What was your experience in high school and college with uh, journalism and, and writing in general? Not a lot, actually, when I was in high school or even college. I think the the writing aspect that I'm more referring to is with an art history degree. It's very it was very humanities based, and there's a lot of writing that goes gotcha. into that. Yeah, Makes so sense. I was able to yeah, so I was able to write a lot of papers and sort of develop my writing skills. Uh, right around the time that I received the editorial internship, I had also there was something called a junior writing portfolio. And it was something in your junior year of college, I had to submit three papers that could show that I knew how to write a thesis statement. And uh, it, it was one of those sort of administrative things in order to graduate. And when I submitted my writing portfolio, I actually ended up getting an email from the director of that program. And she said that my writing skills were very good and that she would have expected that I was an English major based on how well I had done on those and offered me a position. They called it a writing fellowship. And basically it was a glorified teaching assistant position where I was able to help students in an upper level art history course craft their thesis statements. Awesome. And yeah, so that was happening right around that same time that I started with the numismatist. And it just sort of seemed like things were falling into place for me that kind of, you know, that it was, it was almost meant to be. I love when people have stories like that because I'm fortunate to have had a similar experience with my entry point to CoinWorld via an internship. Back then, CoinWorld did an internship, the Margot Russell internship named for the longtime editor. I went to the library and picked up copies of Coin World during my last year of college and over Christmas break. And I was just, I hadn't picked up Coin World in a while. I had even subscribed before and received it as Christmas gifts and whatever. And I saw this ad for the internship and it pays. And you know, having been more, and, and Chris, you and Chris, I think are more similar age, you know how rare it is to find an internship that pays. Absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, here it was. I had no idea where Sydney, Ohio was, but I knew enough about coins and enough about writing to be dangerous with it. And, you know, things just fell into place. I came here and, you know, they basically I was offered a job at, you know, the end of the 10 weeks. And they, Beth said, you know, we got to wait till next year. So anytime somebody has that story of things just falling into place. I love to amplify them because, you know, it's easy to look backward at moments in our life and say, yes, this was, I was on this path for this reason or, or whatever. And so uh, I love that that was your experience. When did you officially join the numismatist outside of an internship role and a staff writer or whatever that first role was 
on the masthead, you know, you know, not in an academic and for credit sense. Sure. I joined as an editorial assistant, I think it was July of 2015. Okay. And then you were uh, just named editor back in April? I was. That was like a year ago. <laughs> it, it feels like two and a half years ago with, with everything going on this year. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the numismatist has been published since 1888, first edition. Very long history. And of course, it wasn't an official publication of the ANA. You know, it, that early period was somewhat controversial and, you know, mixed, if you will. But it, you know, it came under the wing of the organization not long after. And it, it has been the august premier publication in the hobby. How do you see your place in the numismatist history? And what do you you hope to contribute as editor? Well, I think, you know, when you flip through the 132 full volumes, we're in the 133rd volume right now. Uh, I think that one thing is very clear is that this publication has kept up with the times. I mean, you can even just take a look at the cover designs or the cover stories, and you really do get a sense of the era in which it was created. Mm-hmm. You know, I can open up to a random page, you know, just, just flipping through the archive. You know, I saw you know, in June 1940, just mentioned that Eric P. Newman was acting as a Toastmaster, you know, for the Missouri State Numismatic Society spring meeting. It's developed from, you know, smaller format, black and white, maybe more text heavy pamphlet. And now has become, you know, this full color, very graphically interesting magazine that, that's produced in house. So I do feel that, you know, change is built into its DNA. And it really acts as this time capsule of, of history. So I think in that spirit, definitely what I hope to add to it is beginning to publish some of that numismatist branded content online, even for members and non-members alike. I think that's a natural segue, uh, given that change is, is so important for the association and for the magazine, that starting to see how I can have more of that online presence, particularly you know with the world this year having to cope with a pandemic and being at home more often and giving people more ways to interact with our content is going to be the most important goal for me. I read somewhere that Barnes and Noble picked the numismatist up to sell in stores again. I I think I read that that happened in October of 2019. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this in your, in your answer just a moment ago, you're hoping to expand sort of the reach of the numismatist and to reach a broader public. So what are some of the specific efforts on the part of the ANA and the numismatist to engage a broader public? Well, I definitely think that during these last few months, uh, we have had the opportunity, particularly our communications department, to engage with people online. I mean, that's been the best way because we haven't had the opportunity to do our shows, you know, and, you know, summer seminar had to be canceled as well. So our communications department, I have to give them quite a bit of credit because they were able to create a, a new webpage, info.money.org, and it just has this very largely comprehensive list of free content that members and non-members have access to while they've been stuck at home. I think notably the ANA's e-learning academy, we were able to get that put together in just a few months. And that's been very massively successful. You know, we had instructors from our canceled summer seminar and even more people than that come together, produce these one to two hour courses on a wide variety of topics. Our events director, Brianna Victor, She's planning to debut new courses monthly. You know, we, we've also had our, our podcast, which has been new, our, it, called Two Bits, and that is hosted by our curator, Doug Mudd. And mm-hmm. the ANA is getting started calling us Mitch Sanders. 
And I think that they've been they've done a good job already of making that very informative and timely. Uh, you know, the first episode covered collecting during the pandemic. Uh, the second covers numismatic literature. You know, and that that includes some more of the online offerings as well, with the numismatist digital archives, some other options like the Newman numismatic portal. So I think that right now, online is the best way that we're going to engage. And I hope that the numismatist can have numismatist branded content online that goes along with that other content that we've already been working to create. Hmm. So are there any numismatic stories that you find particularly compelling? And how would you define your storytelling method and philosophy to the extent that you have one? Yeah, I think my goal for the magazine is for it to you know echo numerous facets of our society. So I want to include not just the objects that people like to collect and the stories of those pieces, but how individuals engage with numismatics. And I want to do that in both expected and unexpected ways. So, for example, we very recently published an article from William Cooper on Generation Z's new collecting style. And that provided a perspective of how the youngest generation of collectors is utilizing technology to engage with the hobby online and also some tips for being safe while doing so. And I thought that was a very necessary article for right now because there's always a lot of talk of you know how to get younger people interested. But I think a lot of younger people already are interested and they have a skill set that they can share. Um, I also love human interest pieces that show how money can touch someone's life unexpectedly. So uh, in September, we covered a story of a Hungarian woman, Lily Ebert was her name, or is her name, and uh, she survived Auschwitz and received this allied military currency mark note from an American soldier at the time. Uh, He had scrawled a message on it, wishing her good luck. So 75 years after her liberation from Auschwitz, her great-grandson actually posted a picture of this note on Twitter and was able to track down uh, this soldier's son and daughter and set up a meeting for his great-grandmother on Zoom. So I love that money can really connect people. I think that anyone who, who collects understands that, but that was one of those connections that was completely unexpected. And I also appreciate stories with, unsurprisingly, with art historical references or ones that focus on the design of a piece. A lot of that resonates with me, uh, particularly the effort to reach out to younger folks and to illustrate people's personal connection to money. I think that those are, are wonderful themes. And in pursuit of those themes, who are your favorite numismatic writers, historical and or contemporary? Who would you cite as a, as a particular influence in the work that you've done? And who do you think that people should read to try to understand the hobby better? Well, definitely some contemporary authors that I have really enjoyed being able to work with and, and read their work uh, would be Joel Oros. In particular, I, I really liked his article on musings about the first coin convention. David Shankman is another one. Very recently, we published one of his articles on notes of the Mountain Cove spiritual community. And that kind of goes back to that unexpected connection. You have this sort of unassuming banknote. It tied into a effectively a, a cult. It felt like, you know, a spiritual cult. And that was something that I never would have thought would be out there. I've just had, you know, the pleasure of editing them, numerous articles for both of those gentlemen. And I do feel that the stories that they tell are varied and, and well-researched. I'd say historically, I enjoy flipping through when I'm flipping through the digital archives. Glenn Smedley's numismatic vignettes column has always piqued my interest. 
because it's very it's very short format column and he would usually feature at least two different topics oftentimes he would have three or more and i mean they can the topics can run the gamut it could be something about his feelings about the ANA's earliest constitution and bylaws all the way to his aversion to the careless use of the word unique and his feeling that people misuse unique all the time i i like that the idea of that column just being sort of whatever he's thinking of at the time, because it does bring to mind that time capsule aspect of the publication and how it can act as a time capsule for people. You mentioned that you're interested in, in articles that analyze the imagery on whether it's coins or notes. And I imagine that that owes to some extent to your art history background. Mm-hmm. For writers who might be interested in writing that kind of material, what angles do you think have not been covered as often? Or where do you think there might be rich earth to till as far as topics that do analyze the sort of the symbols and the the more artistic elements of coins and, and paper money? You know, I do feel that more recently, a lot of authors, I think Eric Brothers has written one, already sort of relating to designs on various coinage or medallic works. I think metals really lend themselves to that because they can be larger format, they can have a higher relief. I would say that an angle that maybe I haven't seen as much lately would be design elements on banknotes. So I do feel that any articles that focused on that would particularly pique my interest. Can you talk about the challenges that the ANA is uh, facing now and and how that's uh, how you're going to you know maneuver through this you know these are very weird times for everybody you're doing all this new content you know the shows have been canceled and seminar was canceled uh, and you guys are working real hard to get stuff out there and you know unfortunately the cost of membership doesn't cover the cost of the publication and all the many activities you do how can the ANA weather this storm and how uh, important is that? And, and how can members of the hobby help? Well, I think we are very fortunate to have an endowment from the Benny Keith Foundation. And that really does help us to weather the storm. I think we're in a better position financially than many nonprofits out there as a result of that. I do feel that getting people to continue to engage with us, that's, that's really the focus. Our focus is educating people. So I I certainly would love to see our membership numbers continue to grow as they have, even though that doesn't, those member dues don't cover the cost of being a member. I feel that it's just important for us to continue to have the widest reach possible. And certainly if members have the ability to donate to us to sponsor any future events, I hope that they will do so. But I understand that there's a lot of financial strain on a lot of people right now. So the main goal really for me would be just continue to uh, absorb as much of our content as you can and, and, and support us in that way, because that really is our primary mission, is making sure that people are educated on numismatic and the hobby. You mentioned digital outreach as being a major goal for your time as editor-in-chief of The Numismatist. And you also mentioned a desire to activate younger collectors. And you said something that I don't hear a lot of people say, although I think it's true, that a lot of younger folks are interested in numismatics, but they might be engaging with it in a way that traditional hobby organizations might not be best positioned to capitalize on. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Because I know that plenty of folks my age and, and our age, I guess, certainly could be interested in coin collecting if it was pitched in the right way or if it was framed in the right way. Do you think that that's apt? 
Um, I think so. I think that it is a reality of our world that we spend a lot of time, people in our generation and younger, do spend a lot of time with our social media and online and utilizing pages like eBay. I certainly will collect using eBay myself. So I, I think it's just important for people to understand that that is probably not going to go away. You know, it's just going to keep growing and keep developing. So I think being open to that idea and trying to collect in that way themselves or reading articles like the one that William Cooper just wrote, you know, that's, as I said, he actually was able to do a bit of teaching because he was, he was showing a wide audience that, Hey, this is how things are, are being done now. And I liked that he also talked about the necessity for being safe online because you're not able to do things as as much face-to-face. And he certainly didn't disregard the fact that being face-to-face can be a very important aspect of collecting. But he also understood that because we're going to be using these online platforms, here's the best way to do that. Yeah, I'm glad you you mentioned collecting and you you go to eBay because I wanted to know, do you still collect? What do you collect? What's your focus? And what gets you excited in the hobby for a personal collection and and set? I really do uh, adore medals. And I'm sure that goes back to my art historical background, you know, just just the, the love of art. And I think you can find art in numismatics, not just in metals, you can find it in tokens, you can find it in paper money, you can find it in coins. But I do love the freedom that artists have with metals. I have loved that really ever since my first day with the association. So more specifically, I have a collection of metals that were struck by or for museums. So in addition to art history, I took a lot of museum studies courses. The university that I went to actually had a minor in museum studies which is what drew me to it. And you know, so I took a lot of those courses and really absorbed a lot of that information. And I always try to visit as many museums as I can when I travel. One of the pieces that I, I think is maybe of most interest to me right now is this somewhat bizarre piece. It's from the Museum of American Illustration. And it shows on the obverse this large buffalo. It has these exaggerated features. The Society of Illustrators logo is on the reverse with the year 1981. I haven't done a lot of research into it. I kind of just bought it on a whim. But I do know that the date, 1981, is when that museum was founded as part of the Society of American Illustrators. And it's it's one of those things where I do plan to go more in depth in the near future into doing some research on that piece because I'm not entirely sure what the iconography on that obverse is meant to stand for. But I do know that this metal likely was struck in some way alongside the opening of the museum. So I love that connection. I love that this sort of sparked an interest in a, a museum that I hadn't even heard of before, that uh, now I'm hoping to really take this metal and use it to help me understand this museum a little bit better and some of the key players in it. That's awesome because the numismatic objects really can serve as touchstones to better understanding history and the the past. And just especially with metals, there's so much we don't know. There's so many metals out there that are just very hard to find. They were limited in issue and and scope and and reach. And I know as somebody who collects Missouri and St. Louis related pieces, metals included, that sometimes you see something and go, I've never seen that before. So there's definitely, definitely some good research potential with metals. Absolutely. And I think too, I find myself almost 
being more interested in obscure pieces like that, where even if the design is not one that I understand or even respond to in a positive way, I'm intrigued by it. And that's, I think, the, the beauty of numismatics is it can hook you in. Just a, a simple iconography can kind of hook you in, and then it takes you down a rabbit hole, and you're able to learn so much more than you would have otherwise. That's absolutely true. And I think that following that organic curiosity that you you know, are sort of alluding to there, you could even produce numismatic writing that contours around one's collecting interests and sort of allow that curiosity to sort of push people forward. Do you feel that an online medium would allow people more flexibility to explore esoteric topics at greater length and in greater depth than maybe a print publication would? I certainly think so. Um, I think any sort of platform that we would create, I would want to start it off more shorter format, because I think even with uh, the metal that I just described, that could be a a longer story, but it's more likely to be kind of a a quick story that might just hook you in. And I can tell it in 250 words. So I do love the beauty of the online format, though, in that we might start off that way, but I could also see it developing more, as you've just described, where people could go more in depth. And because we are limited by, you know, page count and printing costs and what have you, to be able to publish an article online in larger format in, you know, multiple parts, which we occasionally do in print. But I think that the online platform does lend itself to that better. In that vein, what advice would you offer someone interested in writing numismatically who might not have a lot of experience, who might not have training in numismatics, but might have a journalism background. What advice would you give and where would you recommend that they start out? Well, I think people should always start with what interests them the most. There was a a recent e-learning academy course. It was an hour long course by four uh, YNs in the hobby. And that was the first piece of advice that they gave was collect based on a, an, an interest that you have. You know, so they, I think they gave the example of uh, animals on coinage and how popular that's, that's been with younger collectors. But I think that, that if that's not your bag and you, there's something else that you're interested in, then focus on that. Because if you're interested in something, you're much more likely to do the necessary research and really dive in deep into uh, writing some kind of article about it. Awesome. That is, uh, I think, a a perfect summation and closing thought because uh, definitely to have the spark already and then transition it into numismatics is uh, a great way to go. And I think that is probably the the best and most succinct way to to define it. So we want to thank you so much. We want to respect your time. Thank you so much for spending some time today to speak with us and share your thoughts and, and experience with the listeners. We certainly look forward to seeing you at a show when those are back. And in the meantime, we'll, we will be connecting online and we'll share this um, share this in the next few weeks and just continue to look for ways to expand the hobby's reach. Um, great talking to you. And we, we love what you're doing at the Numismatist and you know certainly know that the ANA is an integral role in the hobby. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate uh, your time and it's been really great chatting with you. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying our shows every week, please do listen, share those with folks, subscribe, make comments, um, rate the show on whatever podcast platform. Just however you are getting your information, we, we want to be part of it. Do send us questions if you have any. We're going to continue to ask for those and put together another episode just of questions. But until next time, happy collecting. 
Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.